Hello and welcome to another podcast edition of Taiwan Talk, ICRT's weekly interview segment, bringing you conversations from and about Taiwan. Today we are continuing our once-a-month series, wherein we feature the work of one Han Cheng of the Taipei Times, uh, specifically focusing on his work for his weekly column, Taiwan in Time, uh, which takes out a little nugget of Taiwan history, dusts it off, and puts it up for everybody to see, appreciate, in the good old year 2016. So we have Han back on the show to do just that for us, to uh, talk about his work from November. We've got four stories to go through. So Han, glad to have you back. Thanks for having me here again. All right. So four stories to get through. Like I said, uh, a lot of these are on sort of the martial law era sort of themes. A lot of uh, looking at society in transition, looking at society as it slowly changed and moved towards democracy. But before we get uh, to that, we, of course, want to feature our monthly musician, somebody who, you know, made some contribution to Taiwan music, historically speaking. And this month, we, we have a guy that's actually near and dear to your heart. Yeah, we have, uh, this week, we have Zhang Yusheng, uh, because uh, the anniversary is uh, he... Um, unfortunately, died in a car accident on November 12th in 1997, and uh, he was pretty young. And uh, for me, it was uh, his album was the first uh, Mandarin pop album I had ever purchased. In, uh, and when we say album, just to be clear, we mean cassette, isn't that right? Yeah, huh? it was a cassette tape. This was 1992. Mm-hmm. I believe CDs were out then, but my family didn't have a CD player. Stay so, true to your yeah. school. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what is uh, Mr. Zhang known for? Like, uh, he's known for his voice. He has a really high-pitched voice that's kind of similar to, like, the lead singer from Air Supply. Mm. And, uh, yeah, he was really famous, really popular in the 80s and 90s. And mm-hmm. he's also known for discovering uh, Zhang Hui Mei and producing her first album. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so tragically died too young back in 1997. Uh, but you are going to start us off with one of his early hits. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, Da Hai from the album of the same name, uh, 1992, and that is the cassette tape that I bought. (laughs) It's too bad we can't dig that up to get the actual audio from that particular cassette. But in any event, uh, this is Da Hai from Zhang Yusheng to take us to our first story. All right, we're coming into our first story for today. This was your November 6th article covering the week of November 7th through 13th, titled Defection to Freedom and then to Prison. Bit of a snarky title. Uh, And this is covering an event that occurred on November 8th uh, in 1993. Yeah, so on November 8th, 1993... uh this Chinese citizen, Wang Zhihua, he faked a bomb using soap and wire and hijacked a Chinese commercial plane um, and directed it to Taiwan. Yeah, and this was actually one of 12 um, successful hijackings that took place between in a 14-month span. Huh. Um, between March... Um, sorry, between April 1993 and June 1994. Busy period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he made it across, but uh, reading your article, 
it, a lot of your article is sort of dedicated to figuring out how that period became as busy as it was. Yeah. Uh, so how about you, you bring us through the history of that a little bit? Um, so... This was already after martial law was lifted, but mm-hmm. during martial law, um, any Chinese defector who came to Taiwan would be uh, heavily rewarded. And most of these were, uh, almost all of these were military defections. So they just mm-hmm. flew their MiGs. Um, so these guys, these were guys that were actual pilots. They didn't yeah. have to hi- hijack a plane. Yeah, they just they stole they the plane hijack. they were flying. Right. They just stole the plane and then came to Taiwan and then they would often be... Uh, given like a rank in the ROC military mm. and given lots of gold mm-hmm. and allowed to stay in Taiwan. So this, Given gold? Yeah. Okay. So this kind of became like a trend where like these people would come here and um, and that's the title. That's why my title is Defection to Freedom because that's what the government uh, would uh, – in government rhetoric, that was what they were doing. They were escaping mm-hmm. communist China and defecting to free Taiwan. Free Taiwan, yeah. Yeah. Free China. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was what was going on. And I think that's kind of what spurred people to hijack mm-hmm. planes when, like, commercial planes became popular. And you should note that back then there was no airport security. Like, people mm-hmm. could bring knives onto planes. And huh. um, you could pretty much – yeah, it was pretty lax. So It was, it was the Wild West. Easy to hijack mm-hmm. a plane. Back <laughs> the then. good old days. The good old yeah. days makes you nostalgic. Uh, okay, so then, how did hijacking? How did actual hijacking start? The first time it was in May 1988. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Zhang Qingguo and Long Guiyun. Mm-hmm. So they hijacked the first Chinese commercial plane to Taiwan, mm-hmm. and they thought they were defecting to freedom, like the military mm-hmm. people were doing. But actually, after they landed. Times had changed, mm-hmm. and they were... Well, that was a year after martial law had yeah, technically ended. Right, right. But the, so they missed it by this much. Yeah, but the period of the period of mobilization for the suppression of communist rebellion was still in effect, so they could technically still be rewarded. Mm. So they did the move, and then, but they were actually greeted as, um, you know, like anti-communist heroes defecting to freedom, but then they were accused of uh, violating the Civilian uh, Aviation Act. And so, yeah, I mean, no matter no matter how patriotic you are, you still hijacked a plane. Yeah, they hijacked a plane. So the ROC, the Taiwan sent the plane and the passengers back, but then put the two in jail. Mm. So, But they served, uh, they were sentenced to th- more than three years, but they served about half of it and were paroled and uh, were allowed to live in Taiwan for the rest of their lives. So it was still kind of successful. Mm. So wait, wait, just so I get the scheme straight, this is a plane that was in mainland China yeah. going to another location in mainland China, and then they threatened the pilot, and the pilot agreed to fly to Taiwan. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's pretty much what happened. Cajones <laughs> these guys had. Yeah. And I think like a lot of some studies blame the Taiwan government's handling of this case because, mm. you know, they... Um, they were still allowed to stay in Taiwan, and mm-hmm. they served relatively light sentences. Mm-hmm. So other people were like, "Hey, like, I can just serve two years in jail, and I can stay in Taiwan." Interesting. So was Taiwan really that much better than uh, than than China in those people's eyes? Two years in jail was worth it. Probably, and uh, it's hard to say. 
um, mm-hmm. because there was a lot of propaganda going on. So, like, mm-hmm. who knew really what was going on mm. there? But um, a lot of these people were actually having trouble, like, um, not happy with their jobs or not. Uh, a lot of the military defections were because they couldn't get promotions. And Wang Zihua, the guy who I feature in this story, he was actually wanted for embezzlement. So, oh. And that could be a pretty big crime in China. Mm. Like in Taiwan, at least, uh, he thought he might not get like the death sentence or mm-hmm. something serious like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's uh, that brings us up to the late '80s. How do we get you know more than more than a dozen hijackings in 1993? I think it was just like a chain reaction. Like one of them started, and then just went on and on. And I looked at this study that kind of explains that the Chinese media didn't really report on what happened to these people. Mm. So they kind of just uh, either didn't they didn't describe. They didn't report it on at all, and if they did, they just talked about the hijacking and complained that the Taiwanese government was keeping these people in Taiwan and put in and instead of uh, sending them back to China, mm. and that kind of created the illusion that they were actually allowed to stay in Taiwan when actually they were sent straight to jail mm. and they weren't even allowed to like set foot outside of Taiwan like even after their prison sentence ended they were sent sent to this like holding cell to await deportation so they actually never actually yeah remained in Taiwan as a free person mm. so is that what ended up happening to Wang Zhihua yeah yeah and his case is even more unique because uh, so he was the last of these hijackers to be sent back to China because he did another he was involved in another hijacking Mm. So he was scheduled uh he was so he was paroled early and he was scheduled to be sent back to China. And during the flight to uh from Taiwan to Jingmen where he would be transferred to the PRC. Um another passenger threatened the hold held a official hostage and turned the plane back to China. Uh, he just happened to be on the same plane? Well, I if, guess there was a lot of these hijackers being sent back. On yeah, the same there plane. were a couple of them. Mm-hmm. So that person, th- uh, yeah, held an official hostage and turned the plane back to Taiwan. Mm. And they searched all the people on the plane, and they found the knife on him. Mm. So he was sentenced to jail again. Mm-hmm. And that, and then after he got out, he had to wait for to be deported because they would send like all the illegal. Uh, Chinese people who enter Taiwan back in, in batches. Mm. So so it ended up that he remained in Taiwan in the t- until 2008. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. So he in a way he got his wish, yep. just probably not the part of Taiwan that he wanted. Yeah. So yeah, this is a pretty pretty weird story because I mean, we think of martial law ending kind of a clean break, but then this happens, you know, years later. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't quite know what to make of it all. Just a, a, a weird trend that kind of popped up. Yeah, a lot, lot of people following the leader, kind of. Yeah, I think uh, I think so. And then after a while, people were finally catching on that. Yeah, you were you were sent to jail, and there would be repercussions, and you weren't. You weren't just allowed to live in Taiwan. So, and then it was also uh, at that point where Taiwan and China both, especially China, started in, uh, improving its airport security. So, they bought X-ray machines. They hired like more guards, and they would like 
do start doing luggage checks, and this kind of uh, by 1995, uh, it kind of eradicated the problem. There was one more that happened after that, and that was it. All right, interesting little slice of history right there. Let's move on to our next story, though, uh, and we have another song from singer Zhang Yusheng. Yeah, um, this is uh, So My Future Is Not a Dream. It's a mm. really positive song about uh, just following your dreams and aspirations. And uh, this was his first hit. Uh, it was featured in the soda commercial. <laughs> uh, you Dream big, everybody. Dream soda big. All right. Yep. Uh, so this is My Future Is Not a Dream by Zhang Yusheng to take us into the second story. All right, and moving on to our second story. This is your article for November 13th. This one takes us back all the way to that week in November of 1977, so just a touch further back in history, uh, with an article titled Burning Down the Establishment. Uh, and uh, this is this is an interesting one because we're still dealing with martial law uh, era sort of issues. But this one is more of like a turning point within that period uh, where where it, it felt like momentum was slowly gathering on the side of uh, ending martial law. Uh, so tell us about this article. So this uh, this is about the Zhongli incident um, that took place on November 19th, 1977. Um, that day was uh, one of the biggest election events in Taiwan history. And uh, basically... People were angry. There had been talk. There had been rumors of like KMT fixing elections uh, to prevent like uh, opposition politicians from being elected, and there was still a one-party rule back then. But um, independent candidates were also allowed to run, and so um, this was kind of like a like when things just kind of boiled over. And uh, it started from a small incident. It was like two couple, uh, two, an elderly couple went to uh, vote for the Taoyuan County Commissioner. And they wanted to vote for Xu Xingliang, who was an ex-KMT who was like expelled for criticizing the uh, party's uh, policies. Mm-hmm. And so obviously the KMT weren't, wasn't happy with this guy. And they actually, what happened was they nominated someone to run for that office and he decided to, he's like, no, I want it. So he ran, he put his name into the hat, and also he wrote two books earlier that you're criticizing the KMT, so they, they kicked him out of the party. Mm. And uh, so they wanted to vote for him, and their votes were voided. Um, so they basically, they looked at their vote, and they said, wrong answer, and they threw him into the trash can. Yeah, like the presiding uh, officer had an explanation. They, he said that they kept talking to each other, and they wouldn't go to separate voting booths, and they used the wrong stamp. Uh-huh. Um, so that was the official explanation, but whether that was true or not, the people were just angry. They were mm-hmm. they couldn't take it anymore, so they took to the streets, and it turned into this big riot that ended up like burning the Zhongli police station down. That's that's a riot. That, yeah. That's a real riot. Okay. Yeah. So this was the first. Uh, this was pretty much the first uh, protests like 
civil unrest kind of turned violent since 228. Mm. So there was like 30 years of relatively, how do we put it, stable mm-hmm. rule with mm-hmm. no uh, with no, no, major, no incident. major incidents. And but so what was the police response like? The police, uh, there was, yeah, so two police fired into the crowd like during the incident when things were getting out of hand and two mm-hmm. people died, but the government didn't um, retaliate or try to... Um, really suppress any of this. And Jiang Jingguo actually forbade the army from interfering. Mm. And um, as a result, he actually beefed up his riot police, mm-hmm. but he didn't really resort to any 228-style mm. uh, repercussions. Just kind of left it there. Yeah. Uh, and so this uh, Xu Xingliang guy, did he actually win? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So they actually had... These people were monitoring, and then after after the incident, they they actually counted each vote and announced it and did it openly. These people were pretty suspicious at that point. Yeah, yeah. So he won, mm-hmm. and he would go on to be one of like the a big Dang uh, Wai, so like opposition figure out of the party. Yeah, out of the party, Dang mm-hmm. yeah. Wai. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and so in your article, you're kind of arguing that this is a real transition mo- moment for that Deng Wai movement, for that pro-democracy movement. Yeah, uh, because uh, there were Deng Wai in the elections before that, but this really brought them together, kind of. Because uh, right after the incident, they formed the Deng Wai Personages Election Assistant Group in 1978, and then... Other politicians were also starting to be more outspoken, and like Liu Xiolian, uh, former ex-vice uh, president, she released also released books criticizing the KMT, and uh, um, it just started, their voice started being heard more. Mm. And of course, there were still many incidents to come, like the Kaohsiung incident, and um, the KMT actually suspended elections after the U.S. broke off relations with Taiwan, mm. which caused much displeasure. Mm-hmm. But uh, but to many historians, this was the beginning. Mm. And I, I guess probably maybe one way to look at it is these were the first two to really push their luck. These were the first two to be brave or maybe just angry and headstrong enough uh, to really stick it to the cops and push it forward. And then when other people saw that, oh, okay, you know, there was repression, but it wasn't of the same level that you would have seen 30 years older, it maybe emboldened a lot of people that were feeling the same way. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, uh, of course, we don't condone burning down any building, but um, it was symbolic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe you could tell me a little bit. I mean, I, I honestly, I did not know that there was that level of political organization, even even in the form, I guess I just didn't know too much in general about how quote-unquote democracy worked during the martial law period. So there was uh, a sizable opposition at that point. Yeah, yeah, there there was. But most of before that, most of them just ran as independent candidates. It was mm-hmm. just like someone who wanted to uh, have a say in the government. Like it wasn't really an... Uh, it wasn't really an organized movement since mm-hmm. uh, other party parties other than the KMT were not allowed. And, and and so so the KMT were they were they taking steps to kind of keep the other independent uh, politicians in control? That's what people were saying. Like uh, mm-hmm. there were a lot of rumors and incidents and uh, such as like uh, Guo Yuxing's case where. Uh, he was an independent that ran for Elan 
uh, governor, uh, sorry, Yilan County Commissioner. Yeah, there's a story that like he lost the election and then they found they found bags of votes for him that were discarded. And so there are a lot of incidents like that that were going on that made people suspicious that the KMT was purposely trying to keep these people out of power. Mm. And and so the figures that are involved in all this, uh, like Xu Xinliang and, and, and the couple, are they still any kind of, uh, do they still have any kind of presence in Taiwan politics? Yeah, um, so Xu Xinliang went on to become the chairperson uh, one at one point of the uh, DPP. Hmm. And he also ran for president in 2000 and didn't win. Well, obviously, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, well, a good effort there. Let's move on, though, uh, to our next story and therefore our next little transition music from Zhang Yusheng. And uh, what do we have next? Uh, we have So, like, the days where... You don't even have a cigarette to smoke. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good translation. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so this is an interesting song. It was actually penned by Wang... Uh, the, the lyrics were written by Wang Dan, who was mm-hmm. uh, famous... Uh, Chinese uh, student activist. And uh, so he wrote this poem that Zhang Yusen uh, turned into a song, and it became a popular... And it, um, So this Chinese guy wrote the lyrics, Zhang Yusen wrote the music, and then it went back to China and became like a, like a protest song like during the Tiananmen incident. And, um, so it became kind of like a symbolic... Um, yeah, protest song in China. Oh wow! And so it was also popular in Taiwan. Mm. So little involvement in history as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is Zhang Yusheng once again bringing us up to the third story. All right, and uh, on to our third story now, this story covering the week of November 21st, uh, and the actual day that we're focused on is November 23rd, 1927, uh, which is the day that uh, one guy who is often known as Taiwan's Sherlock Holmes was bored, and that is uh, the name of your article, Taiwan's Sherlock Holmes. So who was this guy who was born on November 23rd, 1927? So this guy was Yang Ru and he was a forensics expert at the Taiwan Provincial Police Administration. Mm. Uh, okay, so a forensic expert uh, who went on to great things. Uh, how How did he become... How did he become so renowned? Um, he presided over a lot of uh, high-profile cases, mm-hmm. and he was able to find a lot of uh, evidence that would uh, often like turn cases around. And he had some pretty unorthodox methods, like he never wore gloves or masks, and he would actually taste the fluids of the bodies what? and like the, the contents of the dead person's what? stomach. and. He said that was the only way to really tell that if they had been poisoned or how long they were dead or um, 
Uh-huh. All of that kind of thing. So, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, that's not a form of uh, forensic science you see on CSI 2 terribly often. Mm-hmm. Pretty gross. Okay, yeah. so if he's doing such crazy stuff, he must have uh, some credibility. How did he get his credibility in the first place? It was uh, 1949. He was a 21-year mm-hmm. intern. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was this case then where like a couple allegedly hung themselves with one noose. Mm. And the woman died and the man survived by allegedly by putting his finger between his neck and the rope. Mm. So, so that's the story he gave. Yeah. And then uh, so the local police district announced that it was a double suicide. Mm. And but the police headquarters still thought something was fishy. So mm. he's, they sent the young who was a promising, who was pretty promising intern. Mm-hmm. And, An intern. They sent the intern. Yeah. And back then, there really weren't that many people studying forensic science in okay. medical college. He was the only one in his class. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So everybody it, else wanted to be doctors. Yeah, because uh, doctors made more money and you didn't have to deal with dead people. Right. Yeah. So. Well, ideally not. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, they sent him and he quickly f- looked at the noose and found that it wasn't large enough to hold two people. Hmm. So by this simple deduction, the police <laughs> uh, questioned the man again, and he admitted to staging the whole thing, and he had killed the woman. Quite and, elementary. Yep, and he even uh, forged a suicide note. Oh, the the suspect. Yeah, he forged a suicide note that was printed in the newspaper and went viral, mm. um, as far as viral goes back then. Back but, in 1949. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of his first case, gets him on the scene, gets him a bit of credibility. Uh, And then he goes on to uh, lick a bunch of dead bodies, Mm -hmm. (laughs) apparently, and doesn't get kicked out, uh, as most people would get kicked out of their job if they went around licking dead bodies. Yeah. But uh, I guess he he had some other claims to fame, some other big cases he cracked. Yeah, yeah. Um, So he went on to do, like, quite a few... uh like he went in 1977. This was another notable case. It was Taiwan's first uh, dismemberment case. So mm. yeah, and he actually just... <laughs> we're not we're not broadcasting this story. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, and the head wasn't found until many days later. And he was just tirelessly working with these body parts, like still without gloves or a mask, and uh, he finally threw. Like a bunch of clues, a teeth, and stuff like that was able to identify the body. So that was a that was one pretty high profile case. And then there was the murder of the Japanese tourist mm-hmm. that was pretty big in 1990, and he was able to identify the body because the body was found like almost a year later mm. after she disappeared. Mm-hmm. So there was not much to work with, but he was able to identify who it was. And then, and then he there was a there were several more high profile cases re- involving like uh, political activists and politicians and stuff like that. But mm. then I think the biggest one was uh, in Qingfeng, uh, the marine captain who was uh, found dead in the ocean, mm-hmm. and the military said it was a suicide. But Yang actually like looked at the body and looked at the. Uh, material in his lungs and looked at the way he died and all the wounds on him and mm-hmm. deduced that he had been murdered. Mm. And this actually led to the unraveling of like a big military scandal. Mm. And it became common knowledge that Yin Qingfeng was murdered, even though the 
case remains unsolved today, but he mm-hmm. was able to prove that. So that was so that made him even more famous. Okay, so uh, sorry about all of that, guys. <laughs> if you can sit through CSI, you can sit through us describing all of this. Yeah, no pictures. But just to get even a little gr- bit grosser about everything, so what? What's the deal? What was his justification for no gloves and uh, the taste testing and all that? Well, he first of all, the gloves. He explains that he cannot feel the elasticity of the skin if he has his gloves on. Mm. And then uh, with the mask, he said he could smell the bodies mm-hmm. and kind of determine the time of death. Or like uh, he had, he cites one case where they brought in three charred bodies from the same incident, and he's quoted to have said that they smelled the same. So I could tell that they were burned at the same time. If I wore a mask, I would not be able to notice the subtle detail. It's a, the dead bodies, they're all about the subtle details. Yep. you got to take them all in. Ugh. And then furthermore, he said he believed that wearing a mask was disrespectful towards the deceased. Huh, and okay. this guy believed in spirits and stuff. So, so he was kind of a superstitious guy. He was, yeah. So that was part of it. Huh. I mean, this kind of, I mean... I'm sure he was a smart guy and everything, but this kind of sounds like BS. I mean, do you, has anybody looked into whether or not this stuff he was talking about really works? Um, we're not sure. Mm-hmm. I actually read something that it was theatrical. Mm-hmm. Like he would purposely do this kind of stuff in front of reporters. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would actually touch the body mm-hmm. with his uh, middle finger and then lick his index finger. Mm-hmm. So they're they're... Were some talks about this, but um, we really don't know. But um, it's quite possible that it's true. Mm, it just has some heightened senses that the rest of us don't have and don't want. Yeah. Well, if CSI went this way, it would be a very different show. Uh, thankfully, they chose to go a slightly different direction. Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting guy, uh, as 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 we've discussed here. I, I I guess the thing that kind of catches my notice is, as you say, he was a little bit sus- uh, superstitious. And it, it's just interesting that such, you know, a pioneer in a very particular science uh, was still quite a superstitious person. So I, I don't know. Does that say anything about like this period and the way that science was sort of dealt with at the time? Um, yeah, there seemed to be no like contradiction between mm-hmm. like believing in spirits and actually working with the dead. And actually, that was one of his reasons he wanted to. Uh, he said uh, he wanted to bring peace. Two kinds of pieces, like one... As in P-E-A-C-E. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it in. We'll leave it in. We're, we're, this is radio. We don't need to spell correctly. Okay, yeah. So P-E-A-C-E. Mm-hmm. Um, first one was to bring peace to like society and the dead person's family members by like uh, finding out what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. And the second was to bring peace to the dead person by finding out what happened or uh, helping identify the person that killed them so this mm-hmm. would bring um so he wanted them to rest in peace because mm. so, he did believe in their spirits so that kind of actually fueled his work mm. if, if there's anything that's going to make you respecting dead bodies it's uh, a belief in them coming back so mm-hmm. very reasonable there all right let's wrap that one up in a bow and never look back and never think of it again sorry everybody <laughs> if i uh, scarred anyone out there uh, but uh, we are going to go back to some pretty music to take our minds off all the, the dead bodies and ghouls and whatnot. Uh, once again, from Zhang Yuzhang, what do we got here? Uh, this is Kou Shi Xing Fei. 
-hmm. So basically, you're saying something that's different from what your heart is.、Mm. And、uh, this was in his last album,、um, the one where he released before he died, in 1997. All right. So this is Koshi Shinfei to take us up to the final story for today. Slide right in now to our fourth and final story for the show today. This one is covering the final month of November, and we actually I have two dates that we can kind of work with here. Both are for a venerable politician of、uh, Taiwan's mid-century period,、uh, and、uh, the two dates are December second, nineteen eighty-nine, and then going back a little bit further, December third, nineteen eighty-three. Both of these are important dates for. Her political trajectory.、Uh, so、who are we ha- talking about here,、uh, and what did she do?、Uh, we're talking about Yu Chenyueying, and the two dates are December third, nineteen eighty-three. She became a legislator, and December second, nineteen eighty-nine. She was、uh, elected county commissioner of Kaohsiung for the second time, and she's the first female county commissioner in、mm. Taiwan ever. But、mm-hmm. uh, what makes her story more really remarkable is she knew nothing about politics. She was. Um, just helping a regular housewife and helping in the family business until she was 38,、mm-hmm. and she was suddenly called by her father-in-law, who was a big、uh, independent politician,、mm. to run for office,、mm-hmm. and she did it. And then this turned into a long political career where she actually ran, like, was successfully elected to a variety of public offices for the next 30 years, and even served as an advisor for Chen Shui-bian into、mm. the 2000s. And it was kind of like a beginning of、uh, the Yu political、uh, family dynasty.、Mm. As her, yeah, her brother-in-law ran, her sister-in-law, her son, both, all three of her children served as like legislators、mm-hmm. at some point.、Mm. So, 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 power family right there. Let's go back to how her political career started.、Uh, so it was it was kind of a, almost an accident. It kind of fell into her lap almost. Yeah, yeah. She was actually four months pregnant during that time. Oh, and、uh, her father、uh, father in law was Yu Dengfa, which、mm-hmm. was、uh, she. He was former county Gaoshan County Commissioner who、mm-hmm. was、uh, dismissed and sent to jail in a scandal.、Mm-hmm. And Yu Chenyueying writes in the book that he was framed by the KMT, but. Um, Who knows? That's another story that we're、Who、not going to look into today. But that's because of that he was、uh, not allowed to run anymore. But he、mm-hmm. wanted to,、um, as an independent candidate, he wanted to keep supporting people to run as an opposition because he thought like more competition would lead to politics improving, and he just didn't want the KMT to dominate the whole thing. So this is back in the early 1960s, and so she she would be part of that Dongwei movement. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't known as Dongwei back then, but、mm. yeah, she would be, and、mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so basically he was looking for people to run, and then he couldn't find anybody who wanted to oppose the KMT. Because like, why would you fight a losing battle?、Mm-hmm. And、uh, so finally, he got his candidate. 
mm-hmm. and she backed out three days before the registration deadline, and he was left with no choice. Mm-hmm. He wanted a woman because there were guaranteed seats for women in the mm-hmm. provincial assembly back then, and he um, thought that if he didn't send anybody any opposition, the KMT would just win by proxy by sending women to take those seats. So mm-hmm. he insisted on finding a opposition female candidate, mm-hmm. and. With no choice, he asked his pregnant daughter-in-law to oh. run, <laughs> and she was like, "Sure," uh, even though she knew nothing about politics and never thought she would become a politician. I don't know that much about you know the the, the birthing rituals in Taiwan or the chat and chi, like the special soups or whatever that you're supposed to have. But I'm pretty sure running for public office is not one of the things you're supposed to be doing when you're having a baby. Definitely not. And uh, but she just ran into it. She was like, uh, she writes in her memoir that uh, she wasn't prepared at all, but she wasn't scared either. Mm. So she just kind of jumped into it. She admits that she got elected because of her father-in-law's influence. Mm-hmm. But then she actually, and her husband actually just told her to keep quiet mm. and uh, just in the legislature, in the legislature, and or in the assembly, in the assembly. Yeah, and she writes in her memoir that that was something she could not do, and she actually took her job seriously and learned from other opposition politicians and. Uh, when her term ended, she decided on her own to run for a second term. So she kind of got a taste for it over the course yeah. of the first couple of years. Yeah, she actually liked it. And then mm-hmm. it turned into five terms. Mm-hmm. And then after that, she ran for the legislator. Uh, mm-hmm. She went ran for the legislature mm-hmm. and then won a seat there. And then after that, she became the Kaohsiung County Commissioner, um, which was the first time there was a female county commissioner in Taiwan's history. And she did that for two terms. And then Mm. after that, her son succeeded her and ran for two more terms. So Mm. in all, four of her family members uh, served as Kaohsiung County Commissioner for a total of six terms. Oh, wow. Okay. So they're uh, especially a political dynasty in Kaohsiung more than anything else. Right. Uh, okay, so this is uh, quite an interesting figure. I mean, you say that when she started way back in the 1960s, that was before people were even using this term Dong Wai. Yeah. But would she be considered to be sort of a part of this broader uh, challenge to the KMT and moving towards you know more of a multipolar political system, a political system that has some competition uh, with the KMT? Yeah, yeah. Like that was the whole idea behind mm-hmm. her running was to mm-hmm. just provide some competition and so it was not just like a one-party thing Mm. um and while in office she also addressed a lot of the social like the injustices and like voter fraud and like Mm -hmm. uh, so she often spoke out against uh kmt policies and um tried to promote more democracy like she spoke out when they tried to cancel the elections for like borough and village chiefs and they tried to make that appointed and mm. she was not happy with that and she actually spoke out in the assembly this was all during her first term mm. yeah so. hit the ground running yeah now again uh, i guess this is just a period of politics that i really don't understand how if you're an independent candidate and you're not part of the party uh, how how independent could you really be i mean how far could they push this envelope was it was it really you know uh, you you go to that assembly session and you see real debates taking place or or is it more for show what's your sense of all that i'm not sure how much clout they really had mm-hmm. but she stated that she would 
try, she would avoid the ideological issues or、mm-hmm. like the major clashes, and she wouldn't. She she avoided like directly clashing with、mm-hmm. um, the majority.、Mm. She she worked on、um, more on like the people's problems, like my like、uh, farmers' rights and uh, uh, fair elections and like that kind of stuff. So they, she she knew. How to pick her battles, and、mm. she chose the ones that were more、uh, plausible, and she didn't try to like go all out, and because that would definitely get her in trouble. Now it's kind of interesting when I was、uh, prepping for this, and I was looking at some of these articles. There, there were a couple of comments on、uh, your second article, the burning down the establishment article, that were accusing you of giving a very biased rendition of that piece of history. Again, we're talking about the 1977 Jongli incident, where that elderly couple kind of pushed the point, made sure that their vote counted, even though it wasn't for the KMT. Uh, and 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 I, I guess in this commenter's mind, you know, you were doing too much to highlight、uh, the negative things that the KMT did during that period, and not enough to highlight the positive things.、Uh, what 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 is your sense of that? I mean,、uh, I, I, obviously, this is this is a big debate that's going on in how、uh, Taiwan's history should be portrayed in textbooks、uh, for you know all, all levels of education. Is it inherently biased to talk about、uh, these incidents, or, or or is there any way to give a more balanced approach? How should we even be thinking about this? Yeah, it does seem like in a lot of articles you just end up criticizing the KMT because it was a dictatorship and it was、mm-hmm. it was a one party rule and there was a lot of suppression of many things like even cultural activities.、Mm-hmm. Um, In history, and it's interesting because a lot of this was didn't really come to light until the last twenty years because they portrayed this、um, they portrayed this image that they were democratic, they had elections, and、um, it was free China, like、uh, it was a place, it was a beacon of freedom. They were like anti-communist, so、mm-hmm. um, there was all this positive image that they built up. Mm-hmm. And then in the last twenty years, it comes crashing down.、Mm. So I'm sure they did a lot of positive things by,、um, as far as like economy and building infrastructure. infrastructure and all that kind of stuff.、Mm-hmm. But when you really look back into these incidents, it's a lot of it is about uncovering like what people didn't know、mm-hmm. or what people still don't know. And I remember. I moved to Taiwan in nineteen.、Uh, I first came in nineteen eighty six, and then I settled in nineteen eighty nine. So it was still during that period where we were still required to be like patriotic in schools, and we had no idea this was going on.、Mm. And now looking back at it, that's why we're trying to. That's why I put an emphasis on kind of uncovering these things,、mm-hmm. and that might lead to it seeming that I'm biased. Mm-hmm. And but I try to give the KMT side of the story too. Like I do explain what the guard said,、uh, mm-hmm. um, why he voided their votes, and、mm-hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of it is just like debunking a lot of things or like just rewriting history that was rewritten or just was not portrayed、true. incorrectly the first time around. Yeah, and that kind of comes at the expense of the KMT、mm-hmm. a lot of times. Well, if you're somebody. That believes that you know the opening up to multi-party rule was a good thing. Obviously, the KMT 
made a lot of steps to prevent that from happening. So whenever you point out one of those actions, it's inevitably, in retrospect, gonna gonna look like a bad thing. There's really no way around that. Yeah, yeah, and it's like if you want to emphasize like the road to democracy and uh, what we enjoy now with the free elections and mm-hmm. and everything, you you kind of have to go there. Mm. All right, so take that, Taipei Times commenter. Actually, I'm just kidding. We uh, are open to any viewpoints. We're happy to entertain any ideas on the show, but uh, of course, always rooted in historical fact, uh, which is uh, what you look at each and every week in your column, Taiwan in Time. Uh, which we discuss each and every month. And uh, we will do so again next month for the month of December. But we're going to have to round it out here. Uh, once again, our musical artist that we highlighted was Zhang Yusheng, uh, who in uh, Han's boyhood days just I, I, I melted your hearts and made your, made your days br- bright as they possibly could be with uh, all of his cassette tapes. But uh, nevertheless, we're going to have to round things out there. Han Chung, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. And thank you all for listening. Please do join us again next time on Taiwan This Week. Next week, we will be back to our normal format with an interview. So stay tuned for that. See you next time.